For our COBT viewers and listeners, it's Maynard, Mike, and Arjun back from Thanksgiving. We hope you're doing well and that you all had a great holiday. We're really excited to talk today to David Whitehouse. He's the CEO of Offshore Energies UK. Offshore Energies UK is a 400-member uh, industry consortium, all focused on the UK offshore, all the issues and all the opportunities around energy. So, of course, that means oil and gas, but it also means wind. It means everything that is happening out there. Uh, David's background includes a, a significant experience um, in oil and gas. He was at CNR uh, before that shell. Uh, he's also uh, highly educated with uh, degrees in renewable energy, uh, PhD in chemical engineering. And he's just got, uh, he's a delightful guy and he's someone we're really excited to visit with. So David, let me just say thank you for joining us. We're, we're super excited to think again about the UK offshore and all the implications for the world. No, it's great. Thank you ever so much for, for having me and delighted to share with uh, with you what is happening here in the uh, in the UK. And actually, if there's one thing, if I could just correct you on one small thing, oh. I do have lots of, I've got my PhD and my degree, but I'm still studying uh, renewable engineering. So it's, it's something I'm, I'm, I'm working very hard to get myself qualified in renewable engineering in the next few years. Well, perfect. Mike, before we jump in with David, there's always some stuff going on. And uh, this week is no exception. What would you tell us about the markets, oil prices, the whole world right now? Yeah, Maynard, I'd say uh, right now we're kind of in a bit of a churn because most of the economic data that uh, has already come out uh, this week is very, very late from an economic data standpoint. Uh, earnings are essentially behind us. So we're really just, you know, the, the big, big events this week are going to be COP28 and OPEC meeting. Both are going to start on the, the 30th of, uh, of November. As you recall, on the 26th was going to be the original OPEC meeting that got pushed back to the 30th because there's some issues that need to be resolved before uh, this Thursday. I think the issues right now is, is that Angola and Nigeria, you know, want to adjust their baseline production levels up. They back in June basically adjusted them down to you know, just to start some of these OPEC cuts. They want to raise them up, and so. You know, we're, we're talking all in probably two and a half to 2.6 million barrels out of 28 million barrels out of OPEC. So small, small issue, but, uh, you know, it's something that is delayed the meeting. So uh, that is a concern. I'd say the markets right now, crude oil is around $77. I think there's a little bit of an expectation they might come to an agreement here, but it's it's kind of on a daily basis. Things are going, you know, uh, right and left, it seems like. So you know, there's there's as much information as they might even delay it again if that if that happens, and that's going to be concerning. We'll probably see crude oil go down, but but it's a really really big meeting. Now, the reason why I think it's really big is because you know I think you know this last year, uh, 2023 has really been about demand. Demand has been huge, and you know all the supply that's come on has been able to be absorbed. If you look at U.S. production this year, is going to be about 1.2 million barrels a day. Expectations at the beginning of the year around. In growth, yeah, expectations this year were going to be around six to seven hundred, so half a million barrels higher than people expected. You have seven hundred thousand barrels of uranium production on board. You remember there was big sanctions, and so that's increased. You've seen basically Guyana and Brazil above average, maybe another three or four hundred thousand there. So all in with the OPEC cuts and everything, we're close to two and a half million barrels year over year higher. Uh, but demand was. Uh, you know, two, two and a half million barrels. We're not going to have that next year. Demand is probably going to be lower. U.S. bond markets are telling you that basically growth is going to slow. So 
We're going to have to deal with U.S. production probably being five to 600,000 barrels next year. Guyana and Brazil are going to still uh, build. You know, there's going to be OPEC members that want to add to the market. So it's going to be really tough market in 2024 where demand is not going to bail you. So I think that's where the markets right now are really, really concerned that OPEC is going to need additional cuts. I think right now consensus is the 1.3 million barrels of cuts that Russia and Saudi have put in the market are going to continue. I just don't think there's any consensus that there's going to be additional barrels. I think the market wants additional barrels. If we don't get additional barrels, you're probably going to see the market probably churn or maybe go down you know, a little bit. So that's what's happened this week. It's all about OPEC on Thursday. You know, COP28 starts on Thursday as well. You're probably going to hear a lot of craziness come out of that meeting. You know, just, you know, bear with it, I suppose. So that's kind of what we are right now. You know, really, like I said, nothing economically to hear. It's really all about the crude markets this week. So we'll turn it back to you, Maynard. Yeah, the uh, the uh, compare and contrast between OPEC having a big meeting at the same time that COP28 mm-hmm. is happening, that's pretty fascinating. There's always also already been a little bit of uh, fireworks back and forth between, you know, the two. Uh, Arjun, what would you uh, tell us as we turn to our friend David and talk about the UK uh, offshore? Maynard, that's a perfect segue because some of those fireworks are what I'm going to allude to in my comments. And so, of course, this COP is being hosted by United Arab Emirates, and specifically uh, Dr. Sultan Al-Jabbar, who's also the CEO of ADNOC, the one of the largest crude oil producers in the world. And so, we, we, you know, we've seen some questions on oil production, fate of fossil fuels. What does it mean in light of some of the climate concerns? And as part of this, the IA published a report last week, reasonably high profile, that talked about oil and gas companies in energy transition. And Maynard, we, we don't have time for a full 30-minute rant from me on sort of the pros and maybe some of the cons of that report. But I wanted to touch upon one aspect of it, which was their comments on relative profitability for upstream producers in particular versus renewables and other producers. But before I do that, let me level set what our views are. And that is that oil and gas companies um, are primarily responsible for profitably producing however much oil and gas the world continues to demand. Full stop. That is why they exist. So we, I have a more optimistic outlook for both oil and natural gas demand. I don't think there's a year, not even a decade, where we can uh, speculate on when peak demand may occur. But some people have more bearish views. Whether you're bullish or bearish on demand itself, the role of oil and gas companies is to profitably produce oil and gas. Full stop. That's why they exist. As part of climate or environmental responsibilities, I think there is a need to deal with health, safety, and environment more broadly but specifically scope one emissions and methane emissions. I think that clearly falls under the bucket of that is their responsibility. The question then becomes, which was the point of this IA report, should oil and gas companies do other stuff? And that has never been our view. Companies should study the macro outlook. They should research new technologies. For some larger companies, doing some venture capital may make sense. There are companies like Oxy and Exxon that highlight carbon capture as an area where they believe they have a competitive advantage. And I think if they believe that and they're pursuing plans, and certainly it's up to that management team and board and their investors to either conclude these are good investments or not. But it's a it's a voluntary decision in their case to pursue carbon capture. This idea that oil and gas companies must invest in new stuff, I and we continue to push back hard on. And there's a point made in this report that I took particular issue with, which was an analysis of returns on capital. And to, to make a long story short, The conclusion was that over the last 10 years, from 2010 to 2022, the oil and gas sector earned a 6 to 9% return on capital. And for renewables, the number is also similarly mid-single digit. So what's the difference? 
Uh, if oil and gas is volatile and renewables have almost the same return, just do that instead. And I, I really think there are a lot of issues with that return on capital analysis. It's probably worthy of a future post or podcast. But what I'll say this is that period 010 to 2022, that is the lowest return period for this sector. When you look at over 30 years, 50 years, or 100 years, you would conclude for the sector, 9 to 12% returns, not the 6 to 9% cited in the report. For best-in-class companies, let's call it the top two quartiles, the return metrics are 12 to 20%, right? So if you're a best-in-class company, you're going to prefer doing upstream oil and gas if you can continue to find opportunities. Um, with the renewables number, 5 to 7% that they cited, what about all the write-offs you're seeing in offshore wind in a whole bunch of different areas? What about the fact that maybe your return is capped at 5 to 8%, but if you don't deal with your CapEx or cost inflation, you're looking at big write-offs, which to me strike me as negative 100% or some meaningful negative number towards your return. And, and so I think it was a very cherry-picked set of data that used the worst period for the sector. That, that period was bad for the, for the oil and gas sector. No one's making excuses for that. We've been big proponents of sector needs to focus on its profitability. But when you look long-term, and especially look at those best-in-class companies, I'm talking again, 30 years, which is the nature of these investments. You're talking mid-teens versus mid-single digit at best. Now, if you want to say there's a bunch of oil and gas companies who didn't generate 12 to 15% returns and only generated five or zero or might have lost money if they were explorers, true. Do you want those companies investing in renewables or other stuff? There's no way you do. They haven't shown they can do a good job in the oil and gas business. So who exactly is supposed to make this transition? And again, I support companies. I, I, I'm not commenting specifically on Exxon and Oxy, they're top of mind. I respect the fact that they are trying something that they believe in. I've liked, uh, as an example, Chevron's venture capital portfolio. But I think these reports that say you must do this and you're going to cherry pick return on capital data, uh, I, I would just say I think it warrants, if not pushback, at least more study and analysis. And I think you have to be really careful about the kind of narratives that are out there. So sorry, Maynard. I, I know we, we try and stay positive. I think the positive spin on this is that the world is going to need a lot of energy. It's going to need a lot of oil and gas. I've always said and believe, and we believe it's going to need the new stuff. I would just push back that somehow oil and gas companies are going to be best positioned to do that new stuff. And with that, Maynard, I'm going to turn it back over to you. I think we're going to have a great conversation. The North Sea takes me back to the beginning of my career, and I'm, I'm excited to, to speak with our guest today. Well, awesome. Well, thank you, guys. That was a, that was a great lead-in, and and maybe the other positive spin, David, as we think about all this, is um, uh, the IEA has said something. OPEC has said something back. Maybe we got a little debate going here, and when you get a debate going, then you can get some more education and you can get some uh, some better understanding. But uh, David, welcome. We're delighted to have you, and as Arjun said, we're excited to talk about the North Sea. We haven't um, we haven't gotten to. Uh, in quite a long time. So so welcome. Um, maybe just tell us a little bit about uh, Offshore Energies UK, the organization, uh, your role, and uh, let's get into it. No, that sounds great. Well, as again, as I said, thank you so much for, for having me on the uh, on the call today. Excellent. The, um, so in terms of what we, uh, what we represent, Offshore Energies UK, we're, we're an organization. We've been in existence for 50 years, and actually we've been producing oil and gas uh, from the North Sea now for 50 years. It has really powered the uh, the, the UK's economy. 
the standard of living in the UK is in part what it is because of what we've done here in the North Sea. And we as an organisation, we represent those companies that have been producing oil and gas. But more and more, we are seeing the North Sea becoming actually uh, many different um, energy uh, vectors. So we're seeing now increasing offshore wind. So the UK now boasts the second largest offshore wind power generation in the world. Uh, we are beginning to see um, carbon storage beginning to come to, to fruition. So we're beginning to see carbon storage beginning to play, play a part. And what will follow closely behind that, I think, is, is hydrogen. So our, our role here is we represent all of those companies. We represent those companies in terms of technically um, providing um, the right forums to share best practice, but we also represent them with, uh, with government. And I think the way we've kicked off this discussion already today is really interesting from a North Sea and a European uh, perspective, actually where this discussion about the role of oil and gas is. It, it, it really feels sometimes in a very different place. Maybe, uh, David, we could uh, talk a little bit about um, the UK and sort of the, just the kind of the current state of, uh, of the world there. Um, uh, the Prime Minister uh, has been uh, leaning in, uh, talking a lot about the economy, talking a lot about investment. Um, I think from our perspective, what we notice as we talk to people around the world, different regions, different states, you know, one of the key things to getting your economy right is getting your energy uh, system right and managing your energy costs. Just what would you tell us about the current state of the energy debate uh, in the UK, uh, there, there's the climate uh, angle, there's the security angle, there's the cost angle, and, and then there's the overall economy. What, what would you tell us about the energy, energy discussion right now? So, so I think in the UK at the moment, I think, I think uh, the UK economy has been battered and bruised going through, through COVID and then coming through what has been a cost of living crisis. And so, so the UK economy um, actually has been flatlining in terms of growth for a number of years now. So, so that's a bit of context that we kind of start this, this conversation in. Then just in terms of where we are in the, in, the, in the energy discussion, there has been a lot of drive here in the North Sea. There's been a lot of drive in, in the UK and Europe to drive towards net zero. So the, the energy debate is very much um, focused on how do you decarbonize um, uh, your, your country's uh, energy piece. And the UK was one of the first uh, economies to, to commit to a net zero target by, by 2050. And there has been broadly, I think, political consensus on that in the UK for, for a number of years now. I think, I think what has been interesting in the last, uh, the last few years, uh, particularly uh, in part coming out of COVID, but also with the war now um, in Ukraine, is I think people are recognising the importance of energy security and the need for countries like the UK to produce its, its own energy. So that, I think, is much more um, a strong part of the debate here now in the UK is about making sure we're producing our own energy and recognising the role that domestic oil and gas um, uh, uh, plays in that. So I, think, so I think that part of the debate has, has moved on. But what is also really, really clear is, is there's a big discussions here about the cost of energy. And so the cost of energy in the UK is now um, peaked during the uh, during the initial phases of the Ukraine war, but is still sitting at, at, at relatively historic highs, and particularly that's putting a real burden on on those in the economy. So, we, so actually, what we find now is is energy, how you produce it, how you make it affordable, how do you look after your energy security, but still meet those climate goals, is absolutely at the uh, the forefront of the uh, of the political debate here in the UK, and actually more widely in Europe as well. 
So, so maybe we could just do one thing, David. Our our team uh, pulled up a, a couple charts, and uh, I, I know you'll you'll correct us if we have these numbers off a little bit. But I think they're good to just level set, if you don't mind. Here's just a quick one of the uh, oil and gas producers uh, in the UK, and just gives you a sense of of, of the scale of of, of some of these uh, companies' activities. And just to jump ahead. Um, you can get a sense of just overall production, and you can help us with it, with how big these numbers ever were. But clearly, the the UK North Sea, you know, not as big as it once was, but still a meaningful amount of production you know, taken in the context of uh, the UK's total consumption. And then just a couple more. Here's just the the UK government uh, revenue uh, from oil and gas. Uh, activities, which is, you know, not small, 12 billion pounds or so in the early 80s. And then, you know, similar levels uh, not too long ago, much less now. And then just to kind of wrap up, uh, here's a sense of overall spending uh, by UK oil and gas uh, producers, CapEx, etc. And then one last one, which is uh, the the uh, the nation's uh, output versus its demand, and uh, you do see uh, oil demand uh, that top line uh, coming down, um, and obviously the oil output has been uh, has been falling off as we discussed. So, I just wanted to th- throw up those numbers and and talk about them real quick. But what would you tell us, maybe as a history lesson, a little bit about the UK's production, where it was, where it is now, and maybe what's the probability that we could slow it or even increase it again, you know, given some of these concerns uh, that, that we're talking about? So the, so the UK and the North Sea in particular as, a, as kind of a, an oil and gas province really came alive in the, in the 70s um, and, and production peaked at over 4 million barrels a day for the, for the UK. And where we sit today, there's a there's a mix of oil and gas, but fundamentally we're producing around about 1.3, 1.4 million BOEs a day as a as a as a as an average. And you are seeing um, you're seeing a basin that is in decline. So it's it's a very mature province. Um, and our expectation is is with continued investment and continued um, near field exploration. The reality is I think it's unlikely that we're going to see an increase in, in production. So our expectation is we're going to see a continued decline in the basin um, between now and uh, the end of the end of the decade. Can I just ask you one question on that, David? I apologize. But I think one thing that um, the, I think the perception uh, that we might have uh, here is that, you know, it's a it's a tough place if you were interested in it. It's a tough place because the the government will move around sort of the taxation or the incentive or the structure like that's a that's a risk if you're thinking about doing more in the north sea is that fair like what's the state of of how the government is either being supportive or um punitive when it comes to doing more more things in the north sea I think in reality, we went through a period in the kind of the early 2010s where there was, there was definitely instability in the, uh, in the, in the fiscal regime in, in the UK. And then, then I must admit from kind of 2014 up until, till recently, 
there being a good period of stability, which actually I thought created a reasonably attractive environment for those who wish to invest. There's good expertise here and the opportunities are different, but there's, there's good mature field expertise here. The truth is we've just been through a cost of living crisis that, that resulted in, in a windfall tax. In fact, two windfall taxes on the, uh, on the sector. And, and I think there is no doubt that any kind of instability in the tax rate that you're expected to, to pay has a, has a big issue. And I think we're still seeing that. I think, I think earlier on this year, we reported that of the operators in the North Sea, 90% of them had, because of those tax changes and because of the uncertainty that was creating, had, uh, had pulled back on, on their investments. So, so historically, it's been a good place to invest. I think, I think yeah. recent events have, have not been helpful. And, and has there been, so, so all of these attitudes, as you mentioned, people are rethinking security, cost, yeah. um, you, you know, the, the quickest way to, and most efficient way to improve uh, the impact of energy systems. All these things are being rethought. Are people rethinking things like windfall profit uh, moves? I mean, is the, is the discussion there getting better? I, th- I think we've had, you know, so we've had, I think, I think we're hearing supportive noises from the, from the government. And actually what the government introduced earlier on this year was effectively a trigger price. So, so intended to be when windfall prices came off, that actually the windfall tax would go away. So that was something that we had been looking for and, and we were supportive of. The prices were set though at a level which 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 were lower than than well today's prices and, and lower than windfall prices. So I think people do hear do hear the hear the argument. We're not there yet where we've um, got ourselves in a position where, where we're unlocking that. But but what people increasingly see, if, if I could say, so in the UK today, 75% of our we are committed to, to net zero by 2050, but 75% of our energy comes from oil and gas. Um, and of that, domestically, we produce around about half of that. Um, so in both oil and, and so people are beginning to recognize it is so important in a volatile world that you produce your own. And I think you touched on it there. I think what people are also seeing when you know, in a, we've gone through a cost of living crisis, actually this, um, this sector is still contributing over 12 billion um, pounds a year to the British taxpayers. So, so actually it is quite a significant um, piece of economic value today and so so even though we see production potentially declining this is a really significant piece of the uk economy Two hundred thousand very good jobs um employed in the sector so so one more linkage that um that has been uh coming more to onto people's radar is what you do to industry when you make energy expensive and when industry can move it will move yeah is is that something that like your trade association, do you talk to the, you know, trade association that, um, you know, the manufacturers or the industrial players, is there, is there an increasing awareness of what energy costs could do to the uh, industrial base of the nation? I think so. So, so certainly that, that those are not the members that we represent, but those are the conversations that we have with others. And, and I think it, it is very clear to drive a, a successful economy reliable, affordable energy is key. And, and, and without it, you'll see what you see actually in the UK, which actually we have lost a lot of our manufacturing capability over a number of years now, because in part because of, because of energy costs and because people can choose where else to, to invest. And so, so the threat that we see is we're going to continue to, um, we're, we're going to continue to see that. And what we mustn't do here in the UK is erode that, that very important manufacturing, uh, that manufacturing base. Maybe give us a preview. You mentioned uh, UK offshore peaking at you know four million barrels a day. Uh, you know you see it at 
one four or so now and and you know continuing to mature but you also mentioned all this new stuff that is happening whether it's wind or carbon capture maybe give us a an intro to that side of of the uk offshore so, so what you're starting to see is so there's the uk um produces around about 15 gigawatts of, of offshore wind today and actually has ambition that, uh, th that through fixed offshore wind that ambition will grow to uh, somewhere in the region of 50 gigawatts by the end of the uh, of the decade. Um, and, and, and what you'll see is actually what you highlight is is what we have here is a number of we have a number of pure play wind developers that are investing in that. But actually, we are seeing some of our multinationals such as uh, Equinor, Shell, BP are also part of investing not only in oil and gas, but now investing in wind. So, so we see a significant ramp up in wind. There'll be a huge opportunity potentially for the UK in floating wind. So, so we have building on our oil and gas um, supply chain, oil and gas knowledge. There is a real opportunity to provide additional low carbon energy through floating wind. And again, expecting to see first at scale projects delivered in the course uh, before the end of the decade. So, so you begin to see those things change. And the UK also has a, has a, a desire to be um, storing approximately 50 million tonnes a year of carbon. And effectively, that will be used initially to decarbonise some of the UK's heavy industry, kind of our, our steel, our petrochemicals, those those kind of, and our, and our power generation as well. So expecting to have a number of uh, carbon stores offshore by the end of the decade to, to take that. And working closely with Europe, there's an opportunity for the UK to store actually a significant amount of, of carbon from across not just the UK, but across Europe. So, so that's kind of the dynamic that we're seeing. And so, so one of the things we talk about a lot is, is in order to drive that, you, you still need that continued oil and gas um, investment. And many of those companies who may choose to invest in, in wind and carbon storage, they're exactly the same companies who currently support and continue to support the oil and gas sector. And they, they need that oil and gas sector revenue to be successful to, uh, to, to expand their, um, their remit. Yeah, David, uh, I find it interesting that, uh, you know, when I, when I think about the Brent contract, I mean, you know, I think 12, 18 months ago, Midland was uh, included in one of those grades uh, as part of the Brent contract. And, and I just, I'd like to get your, your opinion over the next couple of years if we continue to see production going lower, which you, you fully expect is probably going to happen. What does that mean for Brent as a global grade longer term? And, you know, what are the implications of that? I mean, I, I do think you are seeing Brent volumes coming down. I mean, it's been such an established grade for just such a long period of time. I still think it has legs, to be quite frank. But over time, the UK will become, uh, sorry, the, the UK is still an excellent place to find opportunities, quite frankly. Um, and I think part of the role of my organisation is to make sure we manage, we find those additional opportunities to help people to support that. So, so I do think the, the Brent grade as a, as a global marker is, is clearly under threat. But, um, but I think that the drive of the industry is, is let's let's continue to find the opportunities so we manage that and manage that appropriately. It's uh, it's yes, it's uh, it's sad to see how little is coming through uh, through uh, through Brent and through our Solombo terminal these days. Well, it's 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 just telling because it kind of tells you like uh, you know the U.S. has really thrived by growing our production and now <laughs> the Brent barrel Midland is in the Brent barrel and basically it kind of tells you where economic security is going. Uh, it just it just highlights that. And so it's just, it's pretty stark reminder that uh, that's probably a really bad policy. Yeah, that's exactly what we're saying. 
Yeah, but I might just build upon some of these questions about prospectivity and what's left and maybe what's needed to encourage it. I know there's this question about sort of making new licenses available. Um, is the issue, and maybe it's going to end up being all of the above, but I'll let you answer. Is it searching for new exploration areas that need licensing and so forth? I remember West of Shetlands when that was big in the, I think it was the late 90s and BP and others had made some discoveries. I feel like that's gotten a little quiet over recent years. I can see a number of those independents on the list that Maynard showed, and that often usually speaks of going around established fields and trying to figure out where additional opportunities are. Can you just talk about how one should think about the prospectivity? I think especially American analysts like like I am and all three of us here at Veriden are, we can sometimes stereotype Norsi as being very mature, and that's probably true in an absolute sense. But I think you highlighted there's still prospectivity. How, how, how do you go about encouraging that to be pursued? I mean, I, th- I think there's no getting away from it. It's a mature basin, um, so 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 no denying that. And I think the what what are some of the what what are some of the barriers? I I think we're still looking at opportunities of of so the UK. I think we we're carrying over five or six billion barrels of of potential um, opportunities still within the uh, within the within the UK North Sea, and and potentially more depending on your on your on your appetite. I do genuinely think that where we're going to see the, the bulk of that, though, is very much focused around existing infrastructure, and that it has been where um, where the majority of exploration and actually where the majority of new oil has come from. And I think, as with most other mature basins, actually where where we're finding the majority of of, of new oil is coming from existing fields, um, in, in in truth. But it's really important for any province, I think, to have that churn of new licenses, to have that churn of exploration. Activity, so so there are still those opportunities out there. We still are having good discoveries, good commercial discoveries, which do make a difference to the UK's um, um, uh, to the UK's energy security and 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 uh, and also economic viability. So, so I think when you look, you can still find those those opportunities are still there. And what are the circumstances that make it right? Well, it is good to have supportive policy that actually makes it clear that oil and gas has a very clear role to play in the energy mix, actually for the foreseeable future which in the UK it, it clearly does. So we need policies which are in line with that. Uh, just very recently, the, 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 the current government, I think, reconfirmed a commitment to new licensing. So I think people are just hearing that. I think that that's really important. And actually, and then the other piece that we need to them, so the opportunities there, the commitment around licensing is good. The other piece is, of course, um, stable and certain um, environment that you're investing in. And so we have to effectively undo some of the damage that has been done through the, uh, through the windfall tax. And then the last risk actually in the UK that we need to manage, we have some fantastic assets and, and by, our, by and large, you'll be tying into in, in existing infrastructure to a large degree. And, and a huge piece of the focus is making sure that we are continuing to make those uh, those assets economically viable for the foreseeable future. In, in, in terms of the sort of the societal um, acceptance of that type of philosophy, which I appreciate is different in the UK than it is in the United States. And I'm, I'm, I'm based in the New York area, but obviously Veridon's in Texas. So the societal view of these things can be very different as you kind of go left, I guess, or go west, as they say. Um, I, I, it strikes me that Norway, for whatever reason, has figured out a way where they can talk about decarbonizing through electric vehicles and all the domestic stuff they used to combust that they're not, not going to, but are still able to invest $19 billion in new oil and gas fields, which, again, last time I checked, Norway touches the Arctic, but for some reason doesn't count as sort of Arctic when you look at banks and others protests and stuff. But that's another that's another podcast again. Is, is there something that Norway society-wise, I don't think 
correct me if I'm wrong, please, I'm an American, that Norwegians have accepted this idea seemingly that you can invest in your oil and gas sector while still decarbonizing the stuff you combust. That argument doesn't seem to exist as much in the UK for whatever reason. I feel like I'm missing something there. How do we move the needle on, hey, the world is better off if oil and gas comes from the United Kingdom, from Texas and these kind of places, instead of the obvious alternatives, while we are still trying to move to electric vehicles or hydrogen or all these other things. What's the difference there? What? How do you move the needle on that conversation in the UK? So I think it's a couple of things. I think there is a difference in Norway, just I think the size of the of the industry and, and the recognition actually of, of just what a huge contributor that has been to the Norwegian economy. I think that has been part of why there's a different narrative there. I think you've also actually had, I think, much clearer political consensus in, in Norway, uh, if I'm honest. And so those things, again, I think drive the, 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 the discussion or the argument about the role of oil and gas in a, in a, in, in a Norwegian case where they are transitioning to, to a zero carbon world, I think is, is an argument that is accepted by the public. The UK, I think, is, has been different. I think, I think, um, if I'm critical of, a, of the industry I'm very proud to represent is, is actually in the UK, we've been quiet about the work that we've been doing for the last 50 years. And I think there's a little bit where actually there's a little piece where the public are not aware of actually what some of the amazing things that have happened to, to deliver energy to the UK in the last 50 years. So we've been quiet. And that's allowed a kind of a, a, a narrative around that oil and gas actually it is, it's kind of we need to stop oil and gas and therefore and bring on the, the renewables when we're actually those of us who, who are involved in the sector recognize actually you need the oil and gas and you need both. Actually, if you, if you want to decarbonize, you need both. And that, that very clear message. How do, how, do you, how do you move the dial on that? I, th- I think for me, one is the one thing I've been in this role now for, uh, for a number of months. What my organization has been doing now for a number of years is actually just making the case. And actually, so from a from a UK perspective, we are committed to delivering on net zero by 2050. And to be honest, our industry supports that. We will we will ensure that we're in a place where we will uh, decarbonize our production. We will still use oil and gas beyond 2050, but we'll use it in an abated way. So, so as, a, as an industry, we're very clear that we're going to help deliver on that. And then it's about educating the uh, uh, politicians and educating the, the public. And so what we've been trying to do is get much more out there and having the conversation and actually having conversations with those who disagree. I think there's nothing, you know, I, I like to have a conversation with those who come at it from a different point of view. I think that is useful. And if I could say, sometimes when you look at Europe and particularly when you look at the UK, if you read just what was in, if you went on what was just simply in the newspapers or what you saw on TV, you would think, I think, that the majority of the public didn't support the sector. We poll that. And actually, the truth is, yes, there's a there's a there's a minority who, who absolutely um, uh, would like oil and gas to, to stop domestically and would be prepared to simply import. But the vast majority of those in the UK actually are seeing the value of homegrown energy, the jobs that that supports, the fact that it supports the supply chain that we need for for other opportunities. It provides that energy security. It provides value to the economy. So coming back to your point, I think it is we've got to get out there. We've got to talk about what we're what we're doing. We've got to recognise. Yep, we're on. A, we are on that on that journey. And my feeling is, the more we have that engagement, the more discussion. I do feel that the dial is beginning to um, beginning to move. And my own sense is where I sit here today in the UK compared with a year ago. I actually think we are starting to have a, a more pragmatic conversation about how if you want to tackle some of these cha- these challenges of energy security, energy affordability, and deal with climate change, it's about all of us working together. And I do think, uh, as an engineer who's worked in oil and gas for 30 years, 
The one thing I do know is if you want to deliver good things, you do it by working with people. And I, and I think that message is beginning to, to land. And I do think you're beginning to hear a more pragmatic conversation now, even in the UK. That was a particularly poignant uh, quote, David. I really like that. If you want to deliver good things, you do it by working with people. Maybe just sort of a, a societal question while we're in this uh, zip code that, that Arjun took us to, which I appreciate. Every time I see a, um, you know, of course, you, you never know what algorithm is showing me what, what news uh, I, I, should, I should see that day. But every time there's a just stop oil, uh, you know, protest at an intersection or somebody throwing something on a piece of art, it, it, it's almost always in Europe. And a lot of times it's in the UK. And I always wonder, what is someone trying to accomplish with, with this type of activity? It seems like it just goes completely counter to getting anybody to support your cause. Are, is, it, is that type of activity, is it as pronounced as, as you hear it is? I mean, you hear that sometimes people don't have conferences, uh, energy conferences in parts of Europe because you're so worried about protesters and stuff. But like, wh- how big is this activity and, and is it counterproductive to the cause of climate change, honestly? I mean, again, just in the words of, of collaboration, so how big is this activity? I think, I think there is, a, there is a, a minority of people who are very um, determined and believe the right thing to do is to, is, is to, is to stop oil and gas production and, and we'll focus on, 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 on our domestic production. How big is that? I, I think you, we do get disruption at, at various events. But, but in terms of the, the number of people truly involved in that, I, I, I don't think it's a huge number. Um, and then, and then does it help move the dial? Well, 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 people, you know, people, I think it has raised people's awareness in the, in Europe and the UK about, um, about issues around climate. So I think it's fair to say that some of those protests have, have raised that, have raised the bar. But I also think actually it does become counterproductive, particularly when you have an industry uh, such as the one I represent, which absolutely is part of the solution. Absolutely, trying to produce uh, oil and gas. And I think people do do the, the majority of people do see that and do recognise that. Then I do think it becomes quickly uh, counterproductive, and and actually it slows it down. And again, it's the same thing. If if you don't know what I'm saying, is this it's it's kind of one or the other. It's not. If you do everything, it's about working together. And by actually having this debate, you are slowing down the transition. In my view, we're, we're ending up debating the wrong thing. We're not debating what is the right way to deliver security. To deliver the the affordability and to deliver on our climate goals, we're having this this debate, which actually for me I do feel as if it slows down that transition. Well, that's a great point, and you know I I kind of took us into a, a a funny space. I appreciate you indulging my question, but maybe I could ask you back on uh, similar to the to the Norway question. When you think about the the UK North Sea, the Norwegian North Sea, and then you think about the broader uh, European energy complex, with the UK having uh, post Brexit, um, how how has that affected um, how you might cooperate offshore in various ways? How energy policy is affected? Like, what are the implications of the UK being uh, somewhat separate uh, from Europe uh, post Brexit? Is there anything there worth talking about, David? It's worth touching on that. I think so. Brexit has created some barriers. I mean, so just just the ability, actually, even a very basic level of you know sending crews from the UK 
or Europe to go and work in different provinces is now more problematical. So it's created some of those barriers. We sit now outside of the, the European um, um, emissions trading scheme, so there's a difference there. But the one thing I would say actually is is working closely with the UK, um, sorry, being engaged in some of the uh, initiatives from the UK government. Um, there is a huge drive to, to bring integration. I think there's that recognition that actually, the, the again, it's this piece around you, you're most successful if you integrate. And so there's been lots of, I think, very good work talking about collaboration across the North Sea. Um, the North Sea already has huge amounts of interconnectors. When, when the war in Russia started, it was the UK that provided a tremendous amount of gas to Europe to get through, particularly that first winter. And that, again, is because our energy systems are so integrated. There's lots of drive to put more and more interconnectors in between the uh, into the various countries. So, so my, my, my general point would be is, is, is yes, Brexit was a, was a moment in time. But actually, the reality is the way governments are, are showing up, it is all about uh, it's all about integration and actually doing the right thing by working together. You, you can do the right thing. So one one question I was curious, because I, I think the number you used was uh, sort of five to six billion barrels of additional potential, if I heard you yep. correctly. So and we're at one million four uh, barrels a day uh, right now, if if. Just from a technical standpoint, if the UK said we are going to produce as much as humanly possible from the North Sea, and the only limits uh, were technical, they were not financial or regulatory, do you have a sense or have you seen an estimate from any of your members of, of just how much UK oil production could be if you really attacked it with, with all our might? I think uh, you can probably look at it from probably two lenses, and, and if I don't get the numbers exactly right, please don't. But, so in truth, we have between now and 2050, the UK, I think, uh, so domestically, we are planning to produce somewhere in the region of four to eight billion barrels. And I, and I, and I genuinely think if we threw everything at it, I think you could, double, uh, you could double that. And to put that in context, so that would take you kind of into that kind of 10 to 16 billion barrels equivalent of, of production, I think you could achieve that. And actually, under the UK's um, scenarios where we decarbonize very quickly, where we move away from gas heating, et cetera, et cetera, the UK actually needs to needs to, to use or consume at least 15 billion barrels between now and that point in time. So, so I think I think in terms of what you could achieve, I think you could you could double what we currently have. And the point I would make is actually that still is less than that still is is I think less than the UK's demand. The demand profile under under a rapid decarbonisation of our economy out to 2050. So, so those are the kind of numbers that we would be looking at. Okay, you know, one one question maybe while while we're there, a, a very sort of fascinating feature of 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 the world's energy landscape, particularly in the developed world, is the way in which electricity usage is growing. And some of those numbers over here uh, in the U.S. are, are double-digit growth numbers in electricity annual consumption. And yep. that's the, a lot of that, before you get to electric vehicles and decarbonization and electrification, you know, has to do with just more consumption, AI, all this type of stuff. Is that also happening in the U.K.? Are you seeing electricity demand 
growing at the same time that we have all these other stresses? I think the, um, so in, in the UK, actually, perversely, what you're actually seeing is, is in the longer term, that recognition that actually electricity will form a huge part of kind of our energy mix going forward. So today we pump through, so basically in the UK, about 25% of our energy is, is electricity and the other 75% give or take is, is, is pumped around the country in, in the form of gas or, or hydrocarbons. So that's how we set up today. What's been actually interesting over the last decade is although the expectation is that energy electricity demand will double, it's actually dropping. And, and, and actually electricity demand in the UK has been dropping for the last 10 years, uh, in part because although you're seeing those extra demands that you've just raised, you're also seeing efficiency, more efficiency, more efficient use of electricity, but actually you're also seeing to some degree um, uh, uh, some element of deindustrialization of the UK. So actually it's, it is interesting in the UK that we're actually seeing electricity demand coming down. But mm. if we are successful, you'd expect to see almost a it, those double-digit increases from, well, from now until the end of the decade and beyond. And that 25% just while we're on it, uh that's your wind, solar, nuclear, but where is that 25%? What's producing that electricity? So the, these days, if you, so, so wind, solar, nuclear, um, give or take will be about 40% of the, uh, of that electricity mix. And, and, and generally speaking, um, gas fired power, gas fired electricity will be the other, the other, um, piece. And, and in the UK, there is a drive. There's an expectation that we will deliver kind of a, a carbon free electricity system. By 2035, and, and and some drive to do that by earlier by 2030. So that kind of thing to eliminate the need for for the uh, for gas fired, or at least having abated gas fired power for that. And one of our biggest barriers, which I think is is common of many countries, is the, is the condition of our national grid, the electricity grid. So at the moment, that's a huge area of focus is investment in the grid to bring it into shape so it can actually take the electricity demand that we're talking about. So one of the things that's also creeping up in this whole discussion is just the level of government involvement in all of this. And I know sometimes when I was in the UK not too long ago and, you know, the, the radio discussion was about nationalization of various things again. And so there's a tendency to we're getting the government more and more involved. That's sort of a thematic question. The other one is what we're doing to budgets. Uh, across the Western world. And I, I think the UK is suffering from some of the same things that so many countries are right now. But talk to us about government involvement versus more market-based, and then a little bit about government budgets and, and what we're doing there. So I think in the UK, I think there's no, there's no um, realistic path to nationalization of, 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 what we're, of what we're doing. I think, I think that's... Um, that's that's not on the the agenda. Although there is talk about you know potentially having a government, uh, you know, the equivalent of a government energy company who would who would invest as a as, a, as an investor. Um, what you see, I think, with um, with some of the new energies that we talk about, so um, so wind, getting wind to work, getting carbon storage to work, it does require government involvement. It does require government um, effectively government subsidy, and so that's what's been in place. And because that's been in place, I think naturally you get to a point where where government is involved, and particularly at the moment for us on carbon storage, we have a very highly regulated path to carbon storage, and that that comes about because fundamentally, 
um, for the carbon storage to work today, it requires um, it, it requires government subsidy. So, so there is there is definitely an element as, as the as the energy mix moves, you're seeing more and more uh, government involvement. In terms of the market solutions, though, I think the so ultimately, well, a couple of things we would argue. One is, is some of that subsidy. If you've got a if you've got a oil and gas sector which is which is doing its stuff, then it's producing actually some of the some of the uh, tax receipts that are required for that. But in terms of market solutions, big focus in Europe and the UK will be on carbon pricing. And actually, over time, seeing carbon pricing getting to the point where actually carbon storage stands on its own two feet. Already, actually, with some of the efficiency, we're beginning to see wind already. Offshore offshore wind already is competitive in terms of cost. Onshore wind is probably the cheapest energy today in the uh, in the UK. Um, we need subsidy to get floating wind working, but there's an expectation that the technology and innovation will drive the cost to, to bring that down. So you can see today there's, there is government intervention, but, uh, but you see a path for it to becoming um, much more of a market-driven solution in relatively short order. And David, I think about uh, two years ago, you had uh, COP26 in, uh, in Glasgow, and it seems like so long ago, so many ambitions, and really nothing has, has come of that, to be honest with you. But you know, one of the things that's uh, interesting to me, and you kind of hit on it, uh, that you know, UK is going to be making a lot of investment in the grid, electricity, stuff of that nature. And I know one of the things that, you know, we saw over the last couple of years, predominantly in 2021, is just the price of power exploded in the UK because you do import power from, um, you know, Europe. How is the UK maybe thinking over the next five or six years to kind of wean itself off of being um, hostile to what go, goes on in Europe. I mean, what are you doing domestically to sort of wean yourself off that line that comes into uh, your, uh, comes into to UK from Europe? Actually, so I think you know certainly something that we would advocate, but I think also the government advocates is actually the UK. The UK was energy su- sufficient up until uh, kind of the early two thousands, that kind of time frame, and predominantly because of the oil and gas production that we had. And we've been a net importer of energy now um, since that period, and we're now importing a significant amount of energy. How do we get off that? Well, one is is the things we've been talking about today. I think I think maintain your your oil and gas sector. Where you know we we still we still heavily use it. We will use that for a long time, but also we will see a, a rapid increase in things such as wind and solar, um, uh, nuclear coming online as well. So so what the expectation is that, that come the middle of next decade. Is the UK will be in a position where it is becoming a net exporter of, of energy, and if we can do this in the right way, where we, we put the right incentives in place and we and we bring actually the, the same drive that, that the oil and gas sector has always had is find a way of doing it, and then we will find brilliant ways of doing it better and cheaper and and more efficient. So I think the expectation is is by going down that path then the UK would be looking to put itself in a place where actually it was a net exporter of energy by the middle of the next decade. But actually also it would be driving down costs compared with, with kind of our immediate neighbours such as Europe. It was really interesting. We had a couple shows back, uh, a gentleman from NERC, and he basically said that, yeah, we're going to have a lot more electricity uh, uh, demand going forward. There's going to be substantial investment that's needed there. And it's not only going to be more expensive for power, it might be just more intermittent. How do you, how do, you know, how do, how do the you know, people in UK think about, we're going to be paying a lot more for power going forward. I mean, yeah, you can go ahead and bring on wind, offshore wind and stuff like that, but it's going to cost more. Where's the mindset right now with just the average citizen in the UK is probably just seeing their bills already going up 
and they're likely to continue to go up. You know, is that going to be subsidized by the government or just what is the what is the acceptance or maybe even the pushback at this point in time? And what do you expect over the next couple of years? If I'm honest, I'm I'm not sure we've had a I'm not sure we've had a really uh, straightforward discussion yet with the public about where energy prices are going. So I'll tell you what, some of these new technologies are bringing down some of the costs of energy. There, there's no doubt about that. That's true. Um, some of the costs that we're talking about, I think will the UK government uh, will have to uh, find the capital investment and we'll keep that away. Ultimately, that does come back to consumers, but but in reality, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't hit your bills immediately. So I think we will find significant investment from the government in, in, in key pieces of, uh, of infrastructure. But I think there is a reality that as you look forward, and particularly over the next number of years with, with the variability of some of the new energies and therefore the need for technology. You know, so in the UK, we're looking hard at hydrogen as being a, a, an energy store alongside um, abated, um, uh, abated gas-fired uh, power. But actually, I, I think there's a piece where actually I'm not sure we've really had that, that proper discussion yet as a nation about what the expectations is and actually who is going to pay because there will be significant capital investment required. And actually, in the longer term, there are scenarios where you can see energy prices coming down because of that capital investment. But it's the capital investment we need to get unlocked. And um, and I don't think we've had that proper uh, that proper engagement and discussion about where the burden is going to fall yet. Maybe a, a related final question for me is when I think about the infrastructure needs to attract investment, not just for oil and gas, but perhaps it's offshore wind and elsewhere. You know, one of the challenges outside of the state of Texas, this is true in other parts of the US, it's true in Canada, is getting infrastructure built. We're seeing pushback even to renewables type developments, uh, transmission lines and so forth. And of course, oil pipelines, gas pipelines get regularly protested. My sense, and again, love to get your views, is that with the UK, this is one of the advantages that you're offshore to begin with, that there is a lot of existing infrastructure that at this point is underutilized and so forth. I'm probably not fully up to speed on how much BP and Shell or others might still own or dominate. But sort of if you're especially an independent producer, the ability to access existing pipelines and infrastructure, my sense is this is a real advantage to the UK, but obviously interested in your perspectives. Yeah, certainly from an oil and gas perspective, I think the the fact that we have we have we have today we have great infrastructure, and actually, and as you as you quite rightly point out, that is under we're underutilizing the capacity of that, and actually the access to to market is um, is I think straightforward, and actually, and good codes of conduct in ensuring that uh, that infrastructure is used. So I think so, so. I think that access to market is is good, and for those investing offshore, I think that's uh, that's great. When you look a bit more broadly and you talk about investment in things like wind and and some of the other technologies we've been talking about as part of today's conversation, you do run into those same issues that, that actually we need to upgrade our grid. And although we can run the, uh, although although we can get ourselves in a place where we can manage offshore, even then it's, it's a, it's a, it is actually a congested marine environment. So there's, there's lots of users of the seabed and that's going to become an increasing issue. Particularly when you look at the interface between wind, oil and gas producers, and and uh, carbon storage, actually you do start to run into some issues there. So uh, so there's things that need to be overcome in the next few. But then once you move onshore, we have we do have the same issues where actually we need we need to increase our electricity grid, and in truth that means pylons. And in a country like the UK, we need to take the public with us. That actually we need that that actually public pylons are a good thing, and everyone likes them up until the point they're close, they're proximal to their home, and then we have an issue. So so there's lots of discussion at the moment about again, we're well, actually better engagement with the public, 
and actually thinking about how do you unlock some of those planning processes because they will, some of those will ultimately hinder the, the UK's progression. David, any comment on uh, the workforce and just the um, and getting young people to embrace energy as a, as a profession? When, when you think about your member companies, certainly the classic ones, but also the new ones, what, what is it like to try to find um, you know, the team members you need to, to make energy possible? Is, is that a key issue for your, for your trade group? So for me, what you find at the moment, I think when people are looking for those roles, I think ultimately we can attract. There is no doubt, though, that I think if you look across the UK, um, oil and gas on its own is seen as, um, it is not seen as the most attractive of industries to go into. I think it's, it's, uh, it's, um, it's fair to say. Um, but I think today we can, we can, we can attract. I think, I think what some of the challenges then for us as a sector is actually one is changing that narrative. So even today's conversation is about oil and gas actually has a long future. Oil and gas actually has a future in lot then as a, as the, as a platform for lots of other engineering type roles. So, so again, for us, it is continue to get that message out there that this is about doing things collaboratively and it actually gives you a great career. So, so working on that. Making sure our existing workforce recognise because they, they were here talk about a declining basin, and again giving them that reassurance that there is longevity there and there are opportunities there. So a big piece of our our work is um, is is actually making sure we're advocating for that and working with technical colleges, um, universities, etc. And the other piece actually in this whole mix is is actually is actually finding better ways of people to get into the sector. So 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 historically we've had a relatively you know, by and large, engineering roles, you went through a university, you come into the sector. There are so many other ways to get into this sector now that we need to open all of those up and actually bring a much, give ourselves a much bigger choice and a much bigger pool of talent that we can bring to work in the sector. And the great thing about working in this sector is, you know, genuinely you're doing something absolutely um, vital for the, for, the, um, uh, for the UK, for the world. And one of the things we say to the, to the kids is actually, if you want to change the world, you know, you can go somewhere and talk about it or you can come and work in this sector and you are actually doing it. And so we we, we push that hard. And, and as I said, I am still a student at uh, the University of Aberdeen. So I'm I definitely am working with my student friends to make sure they recognize how great this uh, this sector is to come and work. In. Well, that that was great. Uh, that's a great way to put it to people. Um, do you want to talk or do you want to do? Yep. But maybe we could just ask you one last question as we wrap up, David. You've been so kind with your time. As you think, we're often trying to think 10 years ahead on where all this uh, lands, and, and that can be hard, uh, but we keep trying. Um, <laughs> what I was thinking, though, you know, with Europe and the energy uh, problems and then, you know, what's going on in Ukraine, there's some, there's some real uh, near-term stresses uh, in the system. When you think about the next year, um, what is the thing that you're kind of most excited might happen that would be great? Like what's what's kind of getting you fired up? And then what's the thing you worry about <clears throat> happening in your world? If you don't mind, just kind of frame up those two things for us as we as we wrap up with you. So for me, there are probably two sides of the same coin. Um, I I think you know, I've always been proud to work in the sector. I've always been proud to work in uh, in oil and gas and proud of what we do. I think I think what lies ahead of us in the UK is we've had 50 years of, I think, bringing real value to the economy. I look ahead and I see another 50 years of, of a changing mix 
but real opportunity there, not just in oil and gas, but in these uh, expanding energy. I, I see real opportunity. So what, what makes me excited is delivering that. And, and how do you deliver that? It's actually conversations like this, but getting people to starting to work together and actually seeing more of a consensus that this is the way through, that this is how you should work. So that's what gets me up. That's uh, actually, that's one of the reasons I took on this job. I wanted to see good quality jobs created up and down the UK. I wanted to see that energy security uh, delivered. I want to see those good things uh, happening. And that's what gets me out of bed. And that's what I would like to see over the course of the next year. And the thing that worries me is probably the flip side of that is actually we see more and more pulling apart. It's, it becomes a you know oil and gas versus um, something type discussion, and actually that undermines the, the, the undermines that whole opportunity that lies ahead of us. So, so probably two sides of the same coin. But the, that's what excites me, and that that's what uh, keeps me up uh, at night, and I guess keeps me coming to work to to drive to get the good outcome. Well, we really appreciate it. Uh, David, appreciate you joining us and, and appreciate what you're trying to do and your message of uh, doing good things by doing them together. That's a that's a real winner. So we're going to we'll give you that trademark and then we're going <laughs> to spread that word. Thank you so much. Indeed, it's been, it's been great. And it's been it's been really interesting to hear these different perspectives as well. So thank you very much indeed for the opportunity. Well, thank you, David. And thanks to all of you at home. <laughs>